Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Super excited to see you guys here this morning on this beautiful fall day. Why you are in this building and not outside is baffling to me, but I am glad that you are here. Uh, It is just truly, absolutely gorgeous today. Today we are talking, as you just heard Danielle read, about cost. Um, Continuing on and reading about the life of Jesus through the book of Matthew. And today we are seeing Jesus say some kind of harsh things, right? It's kind kind of serious, kind of severe in some ways. Made me think about cost a lot, and I think our life has gotten costlier. Uh, Today I'm going to teach you about inflation, so if you haven't heard of this word, uh, I'm going to let you know about it. Uh, But it's not even just inflation, actually, you know, like that's the obvious way that we literally, life has gotten a little bit costlier. I was thinking of this, like, since COVID, it feels like the world has gotten more expensive and less satisfying, you know? This is going to get a little sad. I'm sorry about that, but it feels this way, right? Like, normal things that shouldn't be this hard are uh, getting harder. Flying hasn't been great lately. I don't know if you flew recently. They're like, hey, we're going to charge you a lot more. And you're like, oh, man, really? Are you serious? And they're like, yeah, and your plane might not come. And we're like, oh, man, really? Is there anything I can do? And they're like, no, no, sorry, you know, not sorry, really. Your plane's just not here. There weren't enough people. We didn't oversell this flight, so we're going to cancel it. Sorry about that, you know, bummer, you're going to have to pay more, it's going to get canceled. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't really do it for me, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. And they're like, what if we told you that the TSA line was a little bit longer, would that add to sweeten the pot some, you know? And they're like, well, you better hurry up and book, I'm sorry, the prices have gone up again in the time that we've had this conversation, and now you can't fly anywhere. And you're like, no thanks, all right, I'm done with flying, flying's a joke, I'll just drive. And they're like, joke's on you. Gas prices are triple what they used to be. Sorry about that, buddy. You're going to have to drive now. Then you're like, okay, well, I can't do that. I guess I'm going to need a hybrid car. Oof, got you there again, right? We don't have any cars. Sorry. Have you gone to a dealership lately? You walk in and you're like, I'd like a car, please. And they're like, sorry, it costs more. And you're like, fine, I'll pay it. And they're like, we don't have any. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? You're just supposed to wait around, right? You can pay double and join our six months waiting program. That'd be great. So then you go to the Federal Reserve and you say, hey, man, fix the economy, man. That's what we pay you guys for. And they're like, bro, we're trying over here. And they're like, it's just going to have to get a lot worse before it gets better. Have you heard this on the news? Is that not the least encouraging thing to ever hear from your government? They're like, well, we're going to try and make things a lot worse. Maybe it'll turn around. (laughs) Maybe we can hit rock bottom. So you say to yourself, I'm going to go to the old standards, the faithful things that I can trust to be there when I need them. I'm going to go to Taco Bell and get a Mexican pizza. What? No, I can't get that either. What is happening in this world? It is sad. The other day I went to Taco Bell and asked for some mild medium or medium sauce. They said we have mild and Diablo. Isn't that the most terrible option of all time? I don't know why I'm just complaining now about random things that happened to me in my life. But this is the world that we live in now, right? You've just gotten used to it. Like you go in a restaurant and they don't have enough servers. You go uh, to buy something that used to cost you a certain amount and now costs you significantly more, seemingly for no reason. You're not getting anything more out of this system. The world costs that much more. And I think at certain levels, when certain things cost a little bit more, and I'm not just talking like an actual financial cost, but just like the cost of doing something, the cost that it sort of like lays on you as a human being, uh, 
when things start costing a little bit more, every once in a while you bump into something where you go, hey, that costs too much. I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, you guys have heard my anti-Colorado curmudgeonly views on skiing before, but I just came to a point where I was like, no. No, I don't want to sit in three hours of traffic and pay a million dollars to ski down a mountain. It's not worth it to me anymore. Maybe it is to the rest of you guys, but it's not worth it. And I feel like there are so many, that was like the hottest take. I'm getting a lot of strange looks like everybody's like, we need to find a new church right now because this guy is evil. Um, But seriously, things, when they cost a certain amount, you sort of get to this point where you're like, I'm just not going to do it. It's not worth it to me anymore. And what's amazing about that is that everybody else that's trying to sell you on something, which is basically the whole world, is like, no, 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 no. What we have to offer to you is still worth it. And Jesus does something really strange here where he's like, hey, uh, this costs a lot. It might not be worth it to you. Just the, like, weirdest undersell of all time. He's like, hey, yeah, some of you guys, when you count up the cost for this, it's going to be too much. And he's completely fine with that. My hypothesis today is, what I hope we're going to see, is that following Jesus is more costly than we realize and worth more than we could ever imagine. More costly than we realize, but worth more than we could ever imagine. Jesus here lets his people know, or the people that were listening to him, as he was telling them, it says great crowds uh, showed up. Uh, to follow him. And so he's talking to these people and he's saying that uh, the two things that you're going to have to give up is you may not be able to attend your father's funeral and you may not have a home for following around or for following him, right? So the scribe is saying, I'll follow you. And he says, by the way, you might not have a home. Other disciples said, let me bury my own father before I come. And Jesus says, no, you can't bury your father. If you want to follow me, let the dead bury the dead. And if you think about those two things, the sort of way that you can like sort of Uh, synthesize those as like simpler ideas, because I don't think he was just talking about father's funerals, right? I don't think Jesus was specifically anti-dad's funeral, right? If his mom's funeral, it's okay. If it was, you know, uncle, that's maybe a gray area, but dad, no. No, I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I think he was tearing down two of the things that we typically put as like, these are valuable no matter what, and I will trade everything to get these things. And those two things are comfort and family. Comfort and family. Are those not like the twoest thing, two, the two things that we hold the dearest? The most two things, the twoest of things that we hold the dearest? That we say to ourselves like, man, I will move so much. I will change so much about myself. I will give up so much so that those two things can be prioritized first. And here Jesus is saying that he is more important than them, that following him is actually more worthwhile than comfort and family. I'm going to try something right here, right now. I'm going to attack the family, which is good, because Sarah was sick, so she's not here today, so she won't hear any of this. Don't tell her that I said any of this. Now, I want you to know I have an unimpeachable record of loving my family. They're delightful. I really do. I'm big fans, right? Uh, I really, really do absolutely love my family. In fact, I don't talk about it as much as I could, because I feel like I get stuck too often in, like, family metaphors, you know, everything comes back to, like, having a kid or being married or something like that, and I know it gets old, but I could talk about them all the time, because I freaking love those guys. They are my favorite. They are everything to me. And I think that Jesus likes that I like those guys. I don't think that he's, like, totally, like, anti-family, right? But... Here, he is saying something unique. He's saying that if they get in the way of following him, 
If burying your father distracts you at all from being able to follow Jesus completely and fully, then they are getting in the way of what is most important in your life. Jesus doesn't stop here. He actually says this about family later on. He says, now great crowds accompanied uh, Luke says in chapter 14, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Does that not paint like a really, really strong picture of sort of like the balance between following Jesus and even trusting in your family? Now, I don't want to get too, like, binary on this, and I don't think that Jesus is either. I think he's saying something here that is so profound that it is meant to shock us into recognizing the way that we look at our lives. But I don't think that he's saying that you can't have a family, that you need to abandon your family. In fact, we have evidence to say that the early church was doing that, that people started following Jesus, and they were like, bye, wife and kids, I'm out of here, and just sort of, like, ran off and started following Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians, actually, in verse, or chapter 7, Paul goes into this lengthy explanation saying, hey, don't leave your wife, okay, you can't just abandon your children to follow Jesus. You have responsibilities there. But I think what Jesus is saying here and what Paul would agree with is it comes down to more about priorities, more about which one of these things is actually going to come first in your life. And Jesus here is making the claim that the cost of following him means that he comes first, that Jesus comes first. But how could that possibly be true of family? I like to think of it like this, and maybe it's just because I was writing this while I was on an airplane having a terrible experience. Uh, you know how they always say, like, if the air masks come down, that you should put them on yourself, and then if you're traveling with anyone who can't handle it first, or can't handle it themselves, then you put it on them? I think that's kind of like the idea that Jesus is trying to get across here. That actually, when you're thinking about, like, what your relationship to your family should be, that actually what would be best for your family, what would be most helpful and meaningful for them is if you had a healthy relationship with Jesus. That in the weirdest way possible, like in the strangest sort of turn of events, what might actually be really good for your family is if you are following as hard as you possibly can after Jesus, even sometimes if that is hurtful and painful for them, that your family is going to be best served when you are following Jesus. This is true in small ways, like, you know, actually your kids will be served best if you take 15 minutes ignoring them in the morning so that you can, like, spend some time with Jesus, quiet reflection, reading his word. This is true in medium ways, like that when you follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit convicts you of having anger or being impatient with your children, that's actually going to make you a better dad. This is true in even bigger ways. Like, isn't it better to do what the God of the universe tells you to do than to listen to your mama? Now, I know, I know. It's never attractive to do an attack on mamas from the stage, right? Mamas are sacred, okay? We gotta listen to mama. And if you think about this weird story that Jesus is telling where this guy says, hey, can I bury my father? You know who hurts the most in this story? Mama. If she's still around, this is just going to be crushing to her. Dad doesn't care, he's dead. He's off to a better world, hopefully. Uh, but Mama is there, and she says, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. You want to follow a guy around the Judean countryside, and you're going to miss out on your dad's funeral? That's absurd. 
That's exactly what Jesus is asking him to do. Jesus might call you to somewhere crazy. He might call you to do something crazy, and odds are mama is not going to like it. He might call you to Botswana. He might call you to India. He might call you to stay in Denver even after you have a kid. <gasps> oh, that's the gasp one right there, man. We're like, Botswana, I get it, but when I have kids, it is back to mama. I got to go, right? Man, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. It's tough to get up here and even like try and even take down the gospel according to mama because it has become so ingrained in our idea not only of just being human beings in America, but it has become even more ingrained in the church. But I'm not sure if we really took a like honest tracking of our own decision makings, if whether or not Jesus is the main priority and family is second or if family is the main priority and Jesus is second. There's this weird movement in the 90s that we're still sort of experiencing the reverberations from. It's called the church growth movement. And in that time, some really genius uh, pastors and leaders came to this conclusion. They said, people are worried about their kids. They're worried about how they're going to grow up. They want them to grow up good. But people don't even really like church. So what if we had the greatest kids programming on the planet? What if everything that we did was just absolutely wonderful? What if like, it made schools look like they were doing nothing? It made everything else that could be offered to kids just look like nothing? And so we're building giant playgrounds in the middle of our churches, and we're trying to do all of this cool stuff. And in that, it was like this weird shift happened. Like That was all good. A lot of people actually came to faith from that. Like, dads would be like, well, I don't really like church, but I'm going to bring my kid because it's a good place for my kid. And then through that, they heard the gospel and came to faith. But I think what ended up happening and what you and I are experiencing the sort of reverberations from is that subtly this idol crept into the church where it said that family is the most important thing. And I don't know any other direct way to say uh, that that's not the case than to say, hey, if you're going to follow me, you can't go and bury your father. Now, I know, I know it's blasphemy to say, contra the gospel according to mama, that you should move or you shouldn't have to move back when you get kids. You shouldn't have to be close to mama when you have kids. How else would you get that bigger house, right? It's cheaper where mama lives. How else would you get free babysitting? Um, you know, that's a big deal. Obviously, I'm speaking out of a little bit of personal experience. I have dealt, from, dealt with this before. Uh, one of the most painful things, I think, even about this calling that Jesus has put on our lives is not being able to live close to my mama. Deanie Cook is a saint, and I do not want to take anything away from her. And can I tell you that she is just the most fantastic grandmother to my daughter? And man, I grew up down the street uh, every afternoon hanging out at my grandmother's house, or not every afternoon, but pretty often hanging out with my mama. Um, yeah, I'm from the South, okay? I had a mama. If some of you guys don't know what it is, you can look it up, but uh, it's basically a grandmother. And I was hanging out with my mama all the time. It was like a beautiful experience growing up. And can I tell you that when we first started like walking down this journey to go to Denver, we realized that that wasn't going to be the case for Evie. Like, how strange is that? How painful is that? And what's weird is when you put these decisions in like two separate boxes and they don't ever touch each other, they're fine, right? Hey, do you want to follow Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. Do you want to live close to your, par or close to your parents so that your daughter has like good grandparents in their life? Yeah, yeah, I want to do that. When they come into conflict, though, what are you supposed to do? 
And, you know, I think the real problem with a lot of our decision-making is they don't come into contact, right? We keep them in separate boxes, and we say, we're going to put this one over here, we're going to put this one over here, and they never touch each other. And then one day, you're walking down the street, and you say to yourself, man, how in the world am I supposed to raise my kids away from my grand their grandparents? How is this supposed to happen? What am I going to do? And all of a sudden, the decision to, like, follow Jesus with your entire life and do what he says to do is just way over here. It's hanging out. These boxes are still not touching because you're just like, well, I've got to make decisions based on this box. Now, I'm using this example that is just for my own personal life because I think it makes sense. But how many other things do we do that with? That when we're counting the cost or deciding to do or not do something, it's like we have this box over here and it's like, well, I have to do this because that is what people do at my job. You do this and then you do this and then you do this and that is how I make the decision because that is the next logical step in my life. When over here we keep this little box around Jesus that says, hey, I'm going to follow him and do what he says. Or we say, hey, this is what everyone else is doing. This is what my neighbors are all doing with their lives. This is what they are trying to, you know, achieve. And so that's what we naturally do. That's what we as human beings do. That's how the world works. And Jesus is in this little box over here. I think what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that that's probably not following Jesus at all. And I know that's like painful and hard to hear. And I want to also take a second and realize here that this is a costly thing. This is a painful thing. That to have to sacrifice to be able to follow Jesus is something that does cause us pain and stress. It hits us where it hurts. But I believe that Jesus is telling us that it's hard, but it's good. It's hard, but it's good. It's good for two reasons. The first reason is it's good now. At the end of the day, and this is something that my mom has told to me, uh, through her own pain and tears, it is much better to have your children following Jesus, even if that means taking them away from you, than it is to have them not following Jesus. And praise God that my mom loves the Lord and is willing to even sacrifice, that this cost gets transferred to her for us to do what we believe God is telling us to do. That it's costly, but it's good. Because it's better to be in the center of God's will than fighting against it so that you can please someone else or please yourself. It's also good because Jesus won't just take care of you now. Jesus will take care of you later. He says this in Matthew 19, verse 29 and 30. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus says that giving up these things that are very costly are going to be paid back a hundredfold in the life to come. Now look, we don't talk about this all that often at Dwell Church, because there's this huge temptation to just write off things that are hard now, and I think we kind of hate that, right? To just be like, ah, I know this is terrible now, but one day it's going to be a lot better when you get to heaven, so smile. It's kind of like not a very like appealing kind of trade-off. But I think it is like, it makes logical sense. 
Like, I can understand why that sounds kind of hard to hear, but isn't that, like, what you do with any type of, like, investment or anything like that, where you're saying, like, hey, whatever it is that I'm doing right now, it's going to be, it's going to be some suffering. I'm starting out this job, and I'm going to be at the bottom of the totem pole so that it's going to be better later. So imagine that kind of trade-off that you make all the time in your life, and now multiply it by a million, and that is going to be the difference in the life and the things that we sacrifice here on this earth compared to being able to be with Jesus in eternity in heaven. This isn't all that Jesus says. He also said you could be homeless, which, of course, Mama is going to love, right? This just is sort of like double pain on Mama. It's like, man, sorry, Mom, I can't bury uh, my dad. I got to go. Also, might be homeless. Okay, bye, right? Uh, But Jesus says, hey, those who are following after him, I believe that he says specifically, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The best that we understand at this time is that Jesus was traveling around the countryside. Sometimes they're just crashing wherever they were. Sometimes they were uh, going into somebody's house that welcomed them in there. He and his disciples are just sort of like wandering around outside. And the crazy thing is, because we live in Denver, some of you guys are saying, man, that sounds pretty cool, right? Oh, geez, weird outdoorsy people. Like, yeah, that sounds great. I'd be down, right? Maybe I'll ride my bike while I'm doing it and turn it into a whole thing, right? It's a good time. No, it's absurd. Jesus says, hey, uh, I have nowhere to lay my head. That is what it's going to cost if you choose to follow me. Jesus is letting this potential follower know that this is not going to be a pleasure cruise. It's going to be hard. And it's good to manage expectations there, right? Jesus is a good leader. He's a good boss, right? He says, hey, just so you know, this isn't going to be easy. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be uncomfortable for you. Now, the tricky thing that happens immediately when we read a passage like this is we, get, uh, we run the risk of falling into, like, the two-ditch two problem, right? Two-ditch problem. So there's sort of like a ditch that you can fall into on either side of the road. Either we think that we shouldn't feel uncomfy. That was what our, like, college intern said this summer. I don't know if it's like a Gen Z term. I don't want to feel uncomfy. I'm feeling kind of uncomfy right now. We don't want to feel that, right? We don't like that. We don't like to be uncomfy. Or the other ditch on the other side says, I should only feel like I'm following God if I feel uncomfy. So you see the two sides? One of them is like, if I feel uncomfy, that I'm doing something wrong. The other side, if I'm not feeling uncomfy, I'm doing something wrong. And you end up just sort of like bouncing between those two ditches. One of them leads you to seeking comfort all of the time, and the other one leads you to seeking difficult situations, even if it's not actually what God is calling you to do. So what's the solution? Do we just sort of walk this tightrope in the middle of like, ooh, I feel uncomfy, that's good. Ooh, I feel too uncomfy, that's bad. Do we walk it and fall on the other side like, ooh, I'm not feeling uncomfy enough, I'm going to do something that I don't really want to do just so I'll feel a little bit more uncomfy? I don't think so. I think what we have to do is throw out the idea of comfort entirely. I want you to feel ah-comfortable, ah-comfy. I don't know if that's a word. It's definitely not, actually, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Here's what we need to recognize, that your comfort is not an evidence of God's kindness and blessing on you, and your discomfort is not an evidence that you are doing God's will. Let that sink in for just a moment. Your your comfort is not an evidence of God's kindness on you, and your discomfort is not evidence that you are doing God's will. So what then is comfort? What is it? Well, that's nice. It's nice to have. You can have it. 
It's fine, right? Sort of like having heated seats. It's like, yeah, it's cool to have, I guess. If you don't have to have it, you can live without it for a long time. You'll be all right. Some of you can't live without it in the winter, but that's all right. I was thinking about this, like finding a comfy couch is good. You know, if you like do all the work and find the most comfortable couch on the, in the world, like you try out every single couch, you're sitting on them, you're paying $10 billion, you're doing all the things, right? And just like picture this image that pops in my head is like, here lies Josh, this is my tombstone, right? Here lies Josh, 1988 to 2022, he found the comfiest couch and died. Like what a sad life. <laughs> What a sad life that would be, even if it was the most comfy couch that ever existed on the hist- in the history of the world. It still would be a sad and wasted life. And yet, how much of our lives is spent seeking comfort? And I'm not just talking heated seats and comfy couches. That's definitely a part of it. How much of our lives is bent around, like, I don't want to enter into this situation because it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't want to do this next thing because it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't want to talk to this person about Jesus because that's going to make us both feel uncomfortable. I don't want to do anything that is going to push me into that uncomfy zone. I think, again, here, Jesus is talking about priorities, and following Jesus has to be more important to our lives than feeling comfortable. So what does that mean to us? What does that mean to you here in this room? First, you have to ask yourself the question, where are you in following Jesus? Are you like this scribe that's sort of like, man, I'm kind of curious about following Jesus. Hey, can I go do this first? And you're hearing these hard words of Jesus. Are you in this sort of like counting the cost kind of phase? You're saying, man, I'm trying to figure out how much this is going to cost me before I commit to this. Are you in the phase where you are following Jesus? You'd call yourself a follower of Jesus and you know you've experienced that it is costly, that it does actually cost you something? I've been using this word a lot, cost. And when, follow, or when doing something is costly, it means you add up how much it is worth to you, right? Like, isn't that how you make decisions? You have to uh, figure out how much something costs so you calculate its worth. Is it worth it to spend more on a car that'll last longer or is it worth it to pay less on a car that might not last as long? Is it worth it to get that insurance on your phone or not? Is it worth it to go out to eat and pay for pad thai or try to make it yourself? I can answer that one for you actually. It is never a good idea. It's gonna taste worse and cost three times as much for you to do it and you're gonna be disappointed. We make these calculations all the time. And that is why I think it is a good and right thing to do. I think Jesus is doing a little bit more than just managing expectations here. He's saying you should count up the cost. I believe that Jesus here is letting us know that he is more costly than we realize. and Worth more than we could ever imagine. This is actually probably a good thing. Think about things that you pay for in your life, things that you do calculate the cost. If, they're not, if they don't cost anything, are they really worth anything? Isn't that just the way of the world? And I guess to take it more specifically to Jesus, if following Jesus is not costing you anything, is it really worth anything to you? Jesus even tells us to count the cost. He says this in Luke 14. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Man, that's attractive, isn't it? Again, I find it so comforting that Jesus isn't trying to sell us something. Jesus isn't fake here. He's not covering it up. He's like, oh, it'll be easy and puppy dogs and rainbows. And I was really chewing on this. Like, it's weird that grace is such a free gift that, like, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he doesn't want anything return in return. In fact, you can't buy it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to get it. And yet, once you accept that free gift of grace, then following Jesus is going to be costly to you. Is going to cost something. There was once a guy uh, who had heard about this Jesus, and um, he was like a big deal. Uh, his name was Saul, and eventually his name became Paul, and he wrote a lot of the New Testament. He had everything that he really wanted in life. He was well-educated. He was well-respected. He had this weird ability to sort of operate in any space that he wanted to, so he was, like, recognized among the rabbis and the religious elite of the time, but he also had Roman citizenship, and he also was very, like, learned in, like, philosophy and stuff like that. So he was able to sort of, like, operate in all of the realms of power of his day. He had authority. Assumedly, he had some, you know, money that went along with that. He had prestige. He had the respect of people around him. And this guy, Paul, had a, this, like, climactic and dramatic interaction with Jesus. He was fresh off of killing Christians for following Jesus. Jesus comes down, bam, shocks him, and says, hey, follow me. And he has this moment, actually, in Philippians, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, where he starts reflecting on some of that. And really, as we're like on the front end, and I'm asking you the question, like, are you counting up the cost? Does it cost something to follow Jesus? You might have this temptation to say, man, I don't know that it's worth it. I don't know that it's worth it. In fact, very often when Jesus says hard stuff like this, the Bible tells us that people are like, this is a hard saying. I don't think I can accept it. And they walk away from him. And Jesus was not scared of that. But Paul, in reflecting on his life of following Jesus, he says this in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I love the sort of symmetry in this, that here Jesus is telling someone who's about to follow him or about to not follow him, here's what it's going to cost. And here's Paul on the back end looking back saying, hey, I had everything that I wanted and it cost me everything to follow Jesus and I count all of that as rubbish now. That now looking back, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christianity is kind of a weird thing. Following Jesus is kind of strange. 
In fact, Jesus has all these metaphors in Scripture where he says, like, you know, a guy would find this treasure in a field and then he'd sell everything he has to get this treasure. There's sort of like this weird trade-off, right? Where, like, in order to actually be with Jesus and actually to experience everything that he is and says and does, it is going to cost you everything that you have. And the really, like, haunting thought to that equation is, like, are we really getting all that Jesus has to offer if we're not offering to him all that we have? Jesus would say no, right? Therefore, any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This prioritization of Jesus, this putting him first and everything second, this counting the rest of the world as loss and as rubbish is the only way to actually know him. The only way to actually be with him. And it's good. The other weird thing about Christianity is I'm not sure if there's a way that I can describe to you how good it actually is. That's why Jesus was not a salesman, right? He's saying, hey, sell everything you have, buy this field that has a treasure in it because that treasure is going to be good. But you're not going to be able to have it until you do that. He's saying, hey, give up everything to follow me. You're going to have to miss out from your dad's funeral. There's no way to have both of those things. There's no way to be like, I'm going to try the dad's funeral route, and then I'm going to try the following Jesus route. Jesus says, even to the rich young ruler who wants to know how he might inherit eternal life, even after he's done all of this righteousness, Jesus says, sell everything that you have and come and follow me, or give everything away to the poor and come and follow me. Here's what I want to submit to you today uh, in the most unappealing response of all time. There are three options for you. One, you can say to yourself, you can count up the cost logist- or literally the way that Jesus is saying here and say like, I just don't know if this is worth it to me. I don't think that's the right choice, but it's your choice to make. Say, hey, the cost is too high. I'm just going to keep living the way that I'm living. I'm going to try and be a good person and try and do all right and get by the best that I can. Option number two is if you would say that you're not a follower of Jesus today, and especially if you've been sort of like knocking at the door trying to get in and trying to figure out like, man, I, I want to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. Can I submit to, your, to you that you have you tried this route? That following Jesus is something radical, it is something costly, it's something that requires all that you have. I'm always frustrated when I find myself like doing something halfway and then not getting the results that I want. You ever like do like a week worth of lazy workouts and then you're like, why aren't I getting more fit? It doesn't work that way. Just because you showed up at the gym doesn't count for anything. It's the same with following Jesus. There's no way to sort of do it halfway. There's no way to dip your toe in. If you are a follower of Jesus, here's what I would, here's my response for you. If you'd say, man, I am following Jesus. I've counted up that cost and I am willing to give it all. I want you to sit back for a moment and do what I've been trying to do in my own life this entire past week prepping for this and ask yourself the question, what is it actually costing you? 
If you're anything like me and live a pretty comfy life, it's probably going to ask or make you ask the question of like, how much am I actually following Jesus? Are there parts of myself that I'm holding back from him? Are there parts where I put Jesus box over here and then put my other decision-making processes in box over here? If you are anything like me, then it is haunting to think about the fact that if it doesn't cost you anything, it probably isn't worth anything. It is haunting to think about how much Jesus says it is going to cost his followers. And then when you compare it to your own life and ask actually how much it is costing you, it should really, really, really cause us to pause. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to transition into a time of response, and I'm going to allow you some time and some space to actually sit in this. I wish every sermon ended with a cool like pat on the back and we all go out and do it and get it and let's go. But instead, I'm just going to say, hey, let's just actually take a second and sit and reflect. You don't have to believe me. Believe Jesus. Maybe you want to reflect on this text, see how it me- what it means in your own life, and actually count up the cost. And I am prayerfully hoping that we all leave here today more in love, more excited to follow Jesus, and more aware of the actual cost of that. So let me pray for you, and then we'll enter into a time of response. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are clear with us. You let us know that it is going to be costly to follow you. That doesn't come as a surprise. God, we thank you that you're not scared of saying that, even when we might be. God, I pray that today you would show us the actual cost of following you. That you would let us know the way that we have been trying to cut that cost, that we've been trying to downplay it, that we've been trying to ignore it, God, or not pay it, God, and show us a way in which we can actually know more of you by living a life that is costlier. God, we ask that you would show us more of your goodness so that we might understand just the very cost that we are paying and how much it is worth. God, and even in those times when you are not showing us that, Allow us the freedom and the wisdom to be able to understand your will, to know that even when it feels like all we are doing is uh, giving up and not getting anything returned, God, that you have still promised us an even better life and the world to come in heaven, God, that we might experience that fully with you, God. Let us, give us just a brief glimpse or at least give us the trust in you to be able to know uh, that your promises are true. God, I pray over all of us right now that we would have clarity. God, that we would be able to take stock of our lives, that we would be able to ask ourselves the hard questions even when they make us uncomfortable. And that you would reveal yourself as costly to follow, but worth more than the rest of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard, Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.